You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Hello and welcome to the first of a two-part podcast featuring our history maker, Lee John. Lee was the main man behind the band Imagination. Their hits spanned the first years of the early 80s, and they charted in 28 countries with songs like Body Talk and Just an Illusion. In part two, we'll be talking about his diverse career after Imagination, but in this part of the interview, I want to delve into his background, his early years when his father took him to New York, and how his parents and sister influenced his musical tastes. There was always music in the house. They came from St. Lucia, and so therefore we would listen to the music of the day, Calypso, Jim Reeves, Nat King Cole, in any Black Caribbean house in the 60s in the UK, that's what they'd be listening to. But my sister was a big influence because she was listening to um, Blue Beat and Scar and Motown and Stax, definitely Stax. And she was into, she liked the Rolling Stones more than she liked the Beatles because she thought they were more edgy. And I remember when I was very, very young, my mum bought me this record I heard on the radio and it was um, uh, You Don't Know by Helen Shapiro. And I just say Helen Spatero, you know, you know, and I just love that. Well, my love, I love you so, but you don't know, you don't know how much I feel. Da, 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 da. The melody was in my brain, and um, it stayed. That was one of the first melodic musical references. But then I do remember um, that in school, when I was in primary school, another piece of music that got into my brain was Rimsky Korsakov's Shahrazad which has stayed with me for a long time. Um, and I didn't even realise what the music was until, you know, the, the last 30 years <laughs> I discovered it, rediscovered it. But when I actually started to get into to music, um, one of the first records I actually bought, by that time I'd, I'd moved to the States, my friends had split, moved to the States. And um, on the corner of where we lived was a record shop. So I'd listened to such diverse soul R&B music you know I, was, I, was, I wasn't even in my teens yet and uh, I bought My People Hold On album by Eddie Kendricks and at that time Lady Sings the Blues the first version of that with Diana Ross came out and um, I got to see the film I was so impressed by the film and I wanted to know who this Billie Holiday was so I read the book and then every reference in the book, I started to buy the music of these people like Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Satchmo, um, you know, Josephine Baker. I, I wanted to know all of these people, who they were. And uh, I just soaked it all up. And then at that time, we, you know, I started to listen to people like Isaac Hayes, Hot Bodied Soul, you know, um, <clears throat> this is before the theme, theme from Shaft came out. And then there were the the vocal groups that were about. Obviously, everybody was into the Jackson 5 because you were a kid. My cousins were into that, you know, the Love You Save. And I used to love the Maybe Tomorrow album and, and, and Never Can Say Goodbye. But then I also liked things like, um, is it Laura Lee I listened to? And the, was it the, the Presidents? And one of the local groups, very influential for me, in, in a sense, um, just before I came back to the UK, was called, a group called Black Ivory. And they had a, a song called... Um, don't turn around. Don't turn around. Da, 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 da. It was a very falsetto type sound. And uh, they had another track called You and I Have an Understanding, which is a beautiful, beautiful song. And um, at that time, all the 
it was a time of the Temptations and all these other groups, the Shy Lights, the Stylistics. Um, but I was mainly influenced, I think, by Motown because I saw something that I could be. I, would, I could be a four top, I could be a Supreme, I could be a Jackson 5, I could be, a t- I could be all of these people all in one person because the fact is they were doing it and they put it on such a heavier stage. Um, but then I also loved people like Aretha Franklin. You know, I love the gospel side of stuff. And one of my favorite all-time versions of You Only Need to Get By was by Aretha. And I gravitated to, always wanted to know who wrote the songs. So I found that was Ashlyn Simpson. So then that connects me with Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. And, I, and then I became a fan of Ashlyn Simpson at a very early age. I bought all their albums um, and till the point where, for me, the favorite album they did was Stay Free. Nobody knows. This is like the late 70s into the 80s. And, you know, I just loved how they combined being in the soul pop into with the element of gospel with it. <clears throat> and then, you know, I loved all the divas and stuff like that. But one of my favorites was Natalie Cole. And I got to meet her in the mid 70s. I was writing for a magazine, not magazine, it was the Caribbean Times. And um, a friend of mine and myself, we managed to go to Capitol Records, which was EMI in London. And um, this, this lady, Debbie Bennett, who was always involved in press and promotions, she managed to give us a white label of the very first Natalie Cole album, and which has some wonderful songs. So, you know, I was just a fan from then on, you know, and she had so many hits. And, she, and I think about Natalie, she was so diverse with her style of music. She did jazz, blues, soul, gospel, pop. And that's what I thought for myself. That's where I want to be. You know, I want to be able to be very diverse in the things that I do. So even when I formed Imagination, it was, that was my main thing I really wanted to do. Can I take you back just a second, though, before we get to that area? Because the one thing that really fascinated me, in a way, because I come from a family of of parents that also split, is that Mm. you lived with your father, which is Mm. pretty Mm. unusual. Um, what was the relationship with your parents? And do you think the part, because I think for me, part of my drive in life came from want, needing my father to love me in some way. Mm, you know mm, what I mean? Mm. I always felt that my father didn't love me and I think he didn't really. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of, could probably say that. And, mm. uh, and, and I think there was a drive and I just wondered because whenever you, you know, whenever I talk to really famous people, there's, they have mm, this mm. drive in their life to achieve something and particularly early on. And that drive comes from an early age. And I just wondered if you'd ever analysed where your drives oh, yes. may have come from. Well, my mum and my sister were very strong influences. My mum's always been working in the community, the black community in the UK. And she's, you know, she's an MBE. She worked half her life. And my sister was also involved in, in arts to, the, to a degree. And when she went back to St. Lucia, she was in, involved in charity. And I grew up in a household where you couldn't be lazy. You, you know, you can just sit down and say, OK, you know, when I left school, that's it. You know, even though if I wanted to be a singer... I still had to be doing something, do a job. And then, and, you know, in the nights you could still sing, you could do this and that. So, um, but prior to that, when my father took me to America, he actually didn't tell my mother. So he literally, um, they split by that time. And he kind of um, uh, took me on this long voyage on the, the SS France, the longest ship in the world at that time, took me to America 
And we were on it for like two weeks. In those days, they took a long time to get to across the ocean. And my mother had no idea where I was until she got a postcard. So there was always that longing that, you know, I want to see my mom, you know, where is she? You know, and, and, and with that, with the memory of, of what I loved of England and stuff, there was a smell, there was a sense, there was colors. Then when I went to New York, <clears throat> it, was, it was like going into Disneyland. It was completely different. Um, as a, as a, a young black guy coming from the UK, I just saw so much of people of me I saw my own reflection. I saw it in, in so many different ways. And I thought I could do, I could do, I could probably do da, 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 da. To the point I got signed to a, la- a label that my father's wife um, pushed me to go into, but my father didn't know. And, uh, and I won the audition and then I recorded a few demos when I was very, very, very young. Um, and, you know, I, I remember singing for them is it close to you or something like that? And me and Bobby McGee by Janis Joplin. For some reason, I, I love that song. And um, that's how diverse the radio was and stuff. <clears throat> and, but when you talk about my father, he came from a background where they didn't show that affection to their children when they were growing up. When I was younger, yeah, but as we grew up, he was like, um, he just expected me to, to win the swimming um, meet, you know, um, I joined track uh, school, you know, expected me to get, you know, you just expected it, you know, but I didn't feel like if like, um, I was always trying to prove myself and to the point where there was a moment when imagination became successful when I came back to America after coming back to the UK. And he turned and he said to me, which was very, very, it cut me in two, was that um, if I didn't send you back to England, maybe none of this would have happened. Instead of saying, wow, son, you've done really well. Look at you, da-da-da-da. And afterwards, and uh, right from that moment on, I thought, I don't need you. I'm, be- I'm b- bigger and badder and better, and I don't need you. I can get on and do it myself. You know, you've provided me a platform of birth, but I can now move on and do my own thing. And even before he passed away, which he passed away in 2000, he was very much still thinking that what I did was a, a job, but the real job was come back to St. Lucia, look after the land, look after the property. That's where you should be, you know, should be doing. But when he passed away in his belongings, I found all my albums. Oh, wow. And it was like, you know, you know and he, but he'd been talking to other people about me. That was the situation, but he would never do it to my, I think to my face, but I think he was brought up in that Victorian sort of, you know, this English tradition, um, which was passed down to the Caribbean of not really praising your children. You know, a lot of them, you, you know, they don't show their affection. Maybe, because, I mean, I think when you listen to your voice and when you listen to your music, it is very much of perfection. It's very much, you know, like you have this feeling wow, he's, he's really going for it here completely. And it's funny because I read about Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, who was an absolute perfectionist in arranging and everything, that his father never, ever told him that he was any good at every, anything. And so he spent mm. his whole life looking for that confirmation. And it's mm. sort of a similar confirmation. I wonder if that sort of led you to, to actually say, right, I'm going to I'm going to prove. There was a moment, obviously, where you stopped doing that, where you stopped saying... Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I still do, in a sense, in myself. I still try and be a perfectionist. I still, 
try and be the best of what I do. I still think I'm still learning, you know, and that's what led me to technology and stuff like that. And I thought, God, I don't know as much as them. I need to learn a little bit more. I need to learn a little bit more. I, need, I don't know those dance steps so well. And maybe need to do that. I can't do that anymore. You know, I'm older now, so I can't do this. So, all right, I need to do that. But I've always felt that I needed to be the best of what I do. And um, so like with all the, the Imagination songs, Lee Johnson, I did, I did all my backgrounds, all my harmonies. You know, Ashley would come in on a few bits. Uh, but mainly, I remember meeting Freddie Mercury and he was just stunned and astounded that how I did my arrangement. So he was saying he was because he had to pay all the chords to do the vocals. But I just did it all in my head. And one thing I can always say, I never thought I was good enough. That's one of the things I always, because prior to imagination, I was, I was gigging, I was doing working men's clubs, uh, the Caribbean clubs, the bingo halls, pubs. It was fantastic. The great audiences. It was a great training ground. And now I was also in the studio doing background vocals for this one and then doing a few demos here. And they were never quite right. I'd go to this A&R guy and say, what do you think? What do you think? I said, Lee, it's, it's okay. You're getting there. You're getting there. I was never quite getting there until... I did this demo with um, Trevor Horn and he had hired me and another girl called Sonia Jones. I don't know if you know Sonia Jones. Sonia Jones is, was one of the main big session singers back in the eighties and nineties. She, she did loads of things, but she's very well known that people don't even realize it's her <clears throat> imitating a Shirley Bassey-esque sound on the soundtrack of Life of Brian. She's the one that says, Brian, baby called Brian. And a uh, little Welsh girl. And we were starting together doing our sessions. And it was really cool. And we did a track called Cuddle Up and Hold Me Tight for Trevor Horn for Eurovision. We weren't going to sing it. It was somebody else going to do it. And I did one called Taste the Wine or something. Anyway, he liked the tone of my voice. He kept saying I sounded like a young Johnny Mathis, which I thought, oh, my God, no, Johnny Mathis. That's my mum. That's, you know, oh, God. I mean, I grew to love Johnny Mathis's sound as I grew older. But then I thought, oh, my God. And the second person who said I sound like Johnny Mathis was Diana Ross. We were doing a tour. And somebody said, oh, I was with Diana Ross. And she heard you reckon. She says, you sound like Johnny Mathis. I'm like, ah, you know. But it was that situation. At least I was being compared to a legend. So, you know, but um, the Trevor Horn scenario got me into the studio with him. And he was working with, I think, Jeff Downs from Yes, I think. Yes, I think. And before Buggles. And um, we were in a studio in Camden Town, if I recollect. And we did a a couple demos, one called Stand Up and Dance, Dance, and one called Dr. John which is, you know, I Got the Medicine, which is very pseudo-disco, but it was like, um, it wasn't very good. It was very, we were experimenting a lot. Um, and then I didn't like what I did because um, it didn't sound right. So I redid the whole vocal again and called it It's My Life, changed it. That's when I knew you could always change the version of the song and people wouldn't know. And, um, <clears throat> and then... He called me back and said, look, I've got this other song. I want you to try it out. Um, maybe you can add in something to it. So I heard it. And there's this big production. And I thought, bloody hell, this is really cool. And at that time, he was, I think he was going out with Tina Charles. Um, and so she was, um, I, I think she's on the song a little bit. It's called Got To Be Good. And it just had all this production. This is like early Trevor Horn. And um, it was, it was, 
it was so visual when you hear the song on the bass and everything like that. And then um, I forgot about it and put it, you know, put it aside. And then he grew, he got big. I think that's eight, 79, 80 with the Buggles, Video Kill Radio started yeah. blew up. And um, so somehow or the other, somebody recommended me to go to R&B Records. It wasn't R&B at the time, it was Red Bus Records. And Morgan Khan, who'd been a, he was doing a bit of everything, DJing and, and promoting records for PRT distributors in, in, um, in Marvel Arch in London. Um, I, he was crazy. I thought I was wild, but he was crazy. He was like, man, I want to get this. He played me all these records and said, you know, I want a track like this, da, 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 and played me all these music. And um, they're all from America. So then I said, you know what? I may have a song for you. So I brought the cassette down, left, left it with him. He called me back in a few days and said, I want, I want this song. I want this to be the first song on our label. You know, it was supposed to be a Lee John record. There was no imagination. So, I'm Kiki Palmer. I'm an actress, a singer, an entrepreneur, and a Virgo, just to name a few. I'm proud to introduce you to the Baby This Is Kiki Palmer podcast, exclusively on Amazon Music. I'm putting my friends, family, and some of the dopest experts in the hot seat to ask them the questions that have been burning in my mind. What happened to sitcoms? It's only fans, only that. I want to know, so I asked my mom about it. On Baby This Is Kiki Palmer, no topic is off limits. Listen to Baby This Is Kiki Palmer, exclusively on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app now. I just want to take you back to, to what you said about America. And I find that really interesting that you said it was the first time that you were somewhere where you had this mirror to you. So there were these black groups out there. And so you could see um, people doing something that you wanted oh. to do, as opposed, I presume, written, not completely, but I would have, think, would have thought that the perspectives for a black person of you know, of our age back then, mm -hmm. uh, it, it wasn't good. It wasn't easy. No, I mean, um, no, because basically, you know, I, I was lucky. My primary school at Gillespie was multiracial and it was very mixed. So you had Greeks, Turks, Asians, you know, everyone. It was, and people from different Caribbean and Finsbury Park. It's one of the first really big multiracial schools. And I went back to that recent, not, a couple of years ago, to, and saw my ex-teacher. And she told me how, you know, it was in the papers, how multiracial it was, the community was. But at the same time, there weren't black shop owners, to be honest with you. There weren't black teachers. Um, it was just people of power weren't in. With, you didn't, I didn't see myself in that reflection. And there were very, very few black artists at the time, unless you saw them doing um, Calypso or Scar, um, that sort of genre. But the genre I liked in particular with Soul always was, was from America. So when I landed in America, all of a sudden it was like, wow, the Jackson 5 had broken by the time I got there. And my cousins were saying, you don't know the Jackson 5? I mean, I got there by the time I Want You Back came out. By the time I got there, it was The Love You Saved. So they were like into stop, stop, me, save me. It was all that, you know. So it was very um, unusual because you had the Jackson Five, but then you had groups like War, who I loved. That became one of my main groups that I really loved, Eric Burden's War. Um, and then at the same time I was in America, there was the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. And the month before that, I think, was Martin Luther King. 
So it was a very heavy racial time. And the Black Panthers, I remember on each corner, you had these Shabazz um, bean pie places and, and they had these um, shops that would, would have joysticks and posters. And it was very, you know, I'm black and I'm proud. And it, you felt this kind of, hey, you know, something's really, it was, it was a, a, a proud moment to be and see history changing. And then bam, Isaac Hayes wins the Academy Award. Bam, you've got um, Diane Carroll on TV with Julia. Bam, you've got Flip Wilson with his TV show, comedy show. Um, Melbourne Moore and Clifton Webb had a summer special, you know, and it, everything was notable. Why I know the names is because they were so relevant. Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, everybody in the school talking about the fight of the season, you know, the Temptations dance routines. We all wanted to, to look like and be the Temptation because they were slick and they were classy. You know, so it was like, and I was still very young. So it was, it was so diverse. And then, you know, you had the jazz musicians like Miles Davis and stuff really freaking out and Herbie Hancock and stuff. I mean, but then, I mean, I got into a lot of the instrumental music because I was always a clubber when, by the time I came back here and got into the whole club scene, the whole, you know, UK black club, soul and reggae, you know, those two sides. I was part of all of that. And, um, but in America... It was all there. And when I came back, it was like cold soup. Just, mm. to, just to go back to a couple of things, because I don't want to jump too far ahead. The, when you talk about the working man clubs and actually like having to do what people like Elton John did, which is he did mm. in the 70s, which was learn his craft by mm. endlessly playing clubs. Um, and you did the same. And what's interesting about people like you is that there's a moment where it all comes together. There's a moment like, I don't know if you've ever seen Michael Jackson at the 25th anniversary of Motown and yes, yes. Michael Jackson does the moonwalk and he's Michael Jackson finally. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, he's, he's a content, yeah, yeah. yeah. Adele at the Brit Awards when she did Someone oh. Like You and, and, and you just feel that moment and you go, wow, that's, everything's come together at this time. Yeah. And suddenly, yeah. It, suddenly it works. What, do, what did you learn from those clubs, do you think, that really added to becoming Lee John of imagination? I learned about the audience. I was with the Sun Valley Serenaders uh, at the George Canning Pub on a Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday night. And then in the rest of the week, I was a singing waiter, singing um, songs from the West End, where the waiters of Encore, we sing and dance, we give you more than any other stuff pub in town with Gary Shell and a singer called an actress called Tammy Jacobs and Sally Temple and um, Steve Armley. I'd love to track these guys down now. I really would. And we had a, 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 a we were on the front pages, I think, or, yeah, of the second, second page of the Evening Standard of this place called Encore. So I was doing that, and then dash away at at, at in no, I I do the George Canning pub between seven and ten, rush down to Brixton dash to Encore, change up, and get ready to do the midnight show. So what did and you learn from the audience then? What was it specifically? Learning from the audience was that don't be afraid of them, number one. And also, if you are yourself, they will embrace you. And also how to interpret different songs, because I was singing everybody else's songs. I was doing reggae, I was doing calypso, I was doing uh, uh, the songs of the day. Um, and until I started writing my... I was always writing my own material, but... 
Um, I mean, for example, the bingo halls were the greatest audiences because you did three little spots and I loved it. And, you know, you get the old ladies coming up and giving you, hello, love, would you like a drink? Hello. You know, and, oh, here's a little fiver. And, you know, and um, if my mates came to see me, they'd drink up all my, my, my savings, all my um, earnings, you know, because uh, they'd say, oh, put it on his, put it on his tab. But it was like, those bingo halls had like sometimes like 2,000 people because they were old theatres. And so it was like, wow. So I learned how to experiment. I learned about how to, you know, how to experiment with my, my the way I dressed, um, how I threw my voice. I learned um, to, to just the communication and what, how, you, you knew when you were singing, like I was saying, daddy's home, how to melt someone's heart you know, by singing that song and how to do it and just capture someone, someone will go, ah. Oh, tell me, how, how, how do you melt someone's heart? <laughs> yeah, when you sing that song, when you sing Daddy's Home, it's going to melt someone's song. Cause you're gonna, <laughs> oh, my love. It's the melodies. You know, it's the melodies. Of, it's, it's really hard nowadays because some of the songs you hear nowadays are so electronic and sound like computer games with, with vocals on top of it that you don't, they forget that it, the, the strongest songs that hit you, even like Body Talk, there's a melody. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. So the next step going into the frying pan was when I went to R&B and took Got To Be Good. And... Um, they took the master tape of the track, sent it to America, and lost it. It got lost. This is supposed to be my first record coming out, got lost. And this is all the big hoopla, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. So I didn't trust them. So they thought, oh, my God, you know, we've got this artist here, and, you know, what are we going to do? So the next thing um, was I met Tony Swain, because um, Ellis Elias, one of the directors, had said, um, I've got a tape and, you, and I think this, you could write something. I like your writing. Um, this could be something you could write on. I got the cassette that uh, Ellis Elias had given me with the music that Tony Swain had put on it. And I listened to it. And I thought, this is interesting. And I started to write some lyrics and a melody and I uh, used one of my cassette machines and another machine and started overdubbing my voice and stuff and um i said to um morgan i want to come into the studio i've got a song and uh he said which one i said the song that tony's given me so i said okay you know you've got the time i said well i'm going to bring a friend of mine in it with me because you know you guys have messed me up already once and i'm not going to mess about you know so i thought you know what i'm going to do i'm going to form a group so therefore if the group flops, it's not going to screw up my solo career. And that's, that's how cool. really, that's how imagination really started. And so therefore I called Ashley in and we, because I was into Ashley Simpson so heavily, I said, let's try and do like an Ashley Simpson sort of style on, on this track, which I now became, which became Body Talk, which is late 80 when I wrote it. And then we recorded it. We rehearsed and rehearsed, rehearsed, rehearsed. We didn't record the, the, the vocal straight away in the studio. Um, Tony and, and Morgan were like, wow, this sounds really, really cool. But I wasn't recording. I was just singing over the track and doing all the backgrounds and ideas and stuff. And they said, look, could you record something? 
So I thought, all right, yeah, we hadn't signed anything. So I was, that's why I was like thinking, well, we haven't signed a deal yet. Why am I going to record it? You know, I was thinking the business side. Anyway, we recorded it all in one take. We did the two one take. That was it. Morgan was like saying, that's it. You don't need to do another version. And we just did the backgrounds. And then we had it. And, and Tony was the same. So um, they then took that and put it on an acetate and took it through all the clubs. And they worked and tweaked it and pushed up the bass and stuff and the, uh, heightened the vocal and everything like that. And people, because it, it was very hypnotic, it had uh, an element of jazz, it had an element of funk. There was even a, a, an aesthetic of reggae in the field, in a sense, as well, in the, in the bass and the heaviness. Um, and a class with the sense and the, and the difference of vocal tones and everything. Um, it embraced the DJs because we're just coming out of disco. There was a funk thing coming up, but it was not one, it wasn't 120, 130 BPM now. It was coming down to 115, 110, 109, those kind of tracks, but they still had a, a beat, a groove to it. So we were coming right back to that kind of funk feel that they had in the early 70s, but now in the 80s. If they were asking me, well, what do you want to do? Are you going to be a solo artist or a group? So I said, all right, well, we, we probably, let's try and do something like Police in the look. So I'd auditioned with another band called Midnight Express and Errol Kennedy was the drummer. So I liked how he played because he, he listened to how I was singing, how I was moving. Because with me, when I'm on stage, um, it's very important that the drummer is aware of my body movements because if I'm dancing or if I'm doing a certain thing whatever it's all interlinked so the bass the drums the keyboard everybody's looking at because I'm doing certain accents and stuff like that so it's so important and movements you know the body has a lot you know can express a lot when you're talking music you have to really be into it and a lot of people don't realize this so he was really good at that um understand it's a jazz thing as well because I love jazz. So we got him on board. Body Talk was going through all the different clubs everywhere. Um, number one, every R&B chart, soul chart, and decided to do interviews and everything like that. And um, walking down Tottenham High Road one day, um, somebody from the house I was sharing, because I'd left home by this time, because I thought, well, it's time to be the musician, be on your own, said, you've got a phone call at home. The record company's trying to get hold of you. Where are you? Where are you? This is pre-mobile. So I phoned them and they said, um, oh, we're number 44 in the chart. I said, oh, fantastic. Oh, great. Oh, and I just thought, well, that would be it. Because at those times, they didn't push black British music at all. They would come in and come out. And that was it. Two records, boom. And um, so I thought, okay, cool. That's good. And then next day, I got a call saying, you may be on top of the pops because the group has fallen out. So I think, you know, be prepared. So um, I thought, okay, I thought nothing of it. I thought, then I got another phone call saying, Lee, where are you? You're supposed to be here at the company. So us to, so to, us to discuss what we're going to do for Top of the Pop. I said, you said you may be on Top of the Pop. You didn't say we were on it. He said, yes, you are on it. So everything went crazy. Cabs, organizing what we're going to look like, the whole concept, you know, this Arabic sort of uh, you know, ethereal sort of look with a theatrical sensibility, but still being kind of show business. But, um, and then Morgan was very crucial to <clears throat> saying, you've got three minutes on TV, you've really got to push it. You've got to let people remember you. You can't be the four tops or, you know, those groups that just stand and do nothing. People have to be talking about you the next day. 
So on my shoulders, I had all this weight. And at the same time, I'm on the show that as a kid, as families, we'd all be watching. We'd be sitting in front of TV, watching it, dreaming that we'd be on this show because it was the mainstay of, of, of British TV on a Thursday night or Wednesday night. With, yeah, Thursday night. Thursday, yeah. yeah. And um, the rehearsals, uh, and that, that I think um, what you said previously about when you work and work and work and work and work and, work and, you, and you, you're, you're rehearsing life and the moment where we went over the pops had been part of that whole rehearsal. So by the time I actually got to perform that, I was re- very prepared. I knew I had to be in a certain frame of mind, a certain discipline, because we had to repeat things over and over and over for the cameras, for this, for that, you know, and I had to be reduplicating everything. So, you know, I had to be really professional and tight in what I was doing each time. Um, and as I said, there's a, a lot of discipline. And then finally, the final filming session was in the evening. And that was, like, remarkable. And remarkable might be an understatement. If you get a chance, go on YouTube, type in Top of the Pops, Body Talk, Imagination, 1981. You'll be blown away. Well, on part two of this podcast with the multi-talent Lee John, he talks about his love of jazz and Flashback, a documentary film about the history of British black music. See you then. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109.